Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Erickson, and this is the Good Friday Show on WSB. Welcome, it is Eric Erickson here on WSB, and here's what we're going to do for the next two hours. We're going to have our annual Good Friday show. We'll use the short clock and check traffic for those of you getting out of town for the holiday. Uh, This hour and next hour, we'll have a longer clock. Now, why do we do this every year? Well, there was a study conducted just a couple of years ago. Uh, I want to say it was Harvard that did it, but don't hold me to that, please. It, It was a survey of 100 of the most notable historians in the world. There were Westerners, Easterners, uh, there were atheists, there were people of faith, Muslims, Christians, Jews, and they were asked uh, for the 50 most important events in human history. And the number one most important event in human history was, according to the majority of these scholars, the execution of the son of a carpenter in the Roman province of Judea is sometime around 33 AD. That was considered by these scholars to be the most important event. It was more important than the fall of the Chinese empire to the Republicans and then the communists. It was considered more important than Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, more important than Alexander the Great's death and the division of his empire. Uh, A death of a common carpenter, son of a carpenter, in the Judean province of the Roman Empire was considered the most important event in human history. And we remember that execution today, Good Friday. And had it been just an execution 2,000 years ago, I don't think historians would have listed it as the most important event in human history. There had to be something more. And... I do this show every year on this date because I think an event that even secular, atheist, and Islamic scholars, historians, are willing to note is the most important event in history is an event worth setting aside and spending some time on and exploring why it is so important. And so for the next two hours, I hope you'll join me as we explore that. What makes this weekend anniversary so significant? I should note that every year I do a special program of music, uh, only time I play lyrics. I have a lot of listeners who recommend different groups, some of them local. Uh, We'll be playing uh, The Surface of the Deep, a local group, here as we go to break in this segment. Uh, And I put the entire program on iTunes you can or Apple Music. You can follow me there at E.W. Erickson to get the list of songs and download them to listen for yourself. There's another reason I do this program every year, 
and it is because I feel very, very blessed to uh, have a program on this sh- on this network. Uh, it is the most listened to talk station in the country, and I think I can spend at least one show a year on the higher meaning of things and really explore faith topics. And some people complain and say, I do it too much. I try to limit it. Um, But this is a day that is monumental in human history and for personal reasons as well. I never expected to be doing what I'm doing. I fell into it completely by accident. And I have really seen in my life that God's got a plan. I never planned to be in radio. I was going to be a lawyer. And I never planned to be on TV. And yet all of these things have happened. And I believe strongly that God's got a plan. And I don't know where he's leading, but he always has and has always surprised me and delighted me and blessed me. And I think I have an obligation to spend Good Friday each year, if I'm going to be on radio, to explore this topic a little more in depth than what you might otherwise get on a regular talk show. And I realize some people don't like it, um, but I've been overwhelmed every year I've done this by the reception to doing this and speaking frankly about these issues. Um, the, The anniversary of this event, this event profoundly shaped human history. It shaped our idiomatic expressions. It shaped our map. It shaped the structures of our government. It shaped the very ideals on which Western society in particular was founded. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, um, this is a, a worldview that comes from a view of faith, but just in particular the Judeo-Christian faith. And it would not have come about, but for a carpenter, the son of a carpenter, being nailed to a cross, crucified and executed. There, there are no major historians on the planet, regardless of their faith or lack of faith, who dispute that this man Jesus existed. They may dispute that he's the son of God, but they don't dispute that he existed. And they are willing to note that this event fundamentally reshaped human history and even our map. And that's something worth exploring. Why? Why did this happen? Did it really happen? What do we know historically about this guy, Jesus? You know, there are a lot of historians who will say it's reasonable to believe in God, but they don't believe Jesus is God. I can't tell you anything other than what he's done for me and why I believe he is the risen Lord. But regardless of that, something clearly had to have happened 2,000 years ago beyond an execution, beyond stealing a body. Something profound had to happen And it led ultimately to the collapse of the Roman Empire, some would argue, and the rise of Western civilization and a profound tradition that is woven within the fabric of our society. See him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long expected prophet, David's son. David's love By his son God now has spoken Tis the true and faithful word 
Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here on WSB and the Good Friday Show. Your love is like radiant diamonds bursting inside us. We cannot contain your love will surely come find us like blazing wildfire singing your name God of This weekend and why I do it, there's there's a little more to it than that. And I will tell you that in Christmas of 2006, um, my wife was given six months to live. And it profoundly, that event profoundly shaped me. And there that probably has more to do with me doing this than anything else. And I'll talk about that later when we have a little more time. Uh, but I just see as I saw in my life and the way I, things were being laid out for me because I had no plan. I'm completely thrown for a loop by that. It wound up thankfully being a misdiagnosis or an earlier than expected diagnosis by a decade. Um, it profoundly shaped who I am and what I do and really shaped my faith and my interaction with it. And over the last number of years, many of you know, I started going to seminary largely because a number of you reached out and asked if I could fill in for your pastor on vacation. And I kept saying no, because I'd never been to seminary. And so I've started going to seminary. And um, when I started going to Reform Theological Seminary, all the invitations went away. And now I've transferred to Southeastern Baptist to work on my PhD in theology and am in the process now of, of doing more preaching because as part of the program for public theology, that's a part of what I have to do as a preaching component. Uh, so if you want me to come talk in your church or preach on a Sunday, let me know, hint, hint. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, I've realized that I have to shape my uh, politics to my faith and not my faith to my politics. And if you've been a longtime listener of this program, you have heard that evolution in, in thought processes that I share with you on this program. Um, but all of it kind of comes back to, I, I feel like I should tithe my airtime as well and spend some time talking about these issues on this program, which is why I just enjoy working for a radio station that not only allows me to do this, but now has come to me and said, Hey, you got to do this at Christmas as well. And I appreciate that you guys like it enough that the station feels comfortable letting me do it because most stations would not do it. And I know even here sometimes some people say, oh, is he talking too much about this Jesus stuff? There's a balance. But this is a day where I feel that I should approach it with gusto. I've been very blessed in my life and want to share with you my views on these things because, again, it is such an important date.
before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. You have been so, so good to me. Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. been so, so kind to me. Welcome, it's Eric Erickson here on WSB, and this is the Good Friday Show. Just a, I, I don't know him, but I hear he's a, a great, great guy. Um, historically, what do we know? Uh, first of all, one of the things that we know is that many of the accounts of Jesus, the historic accounts, came um, in a closer time frame to his life than what we know about uh, Nero or even um, Trajan, the Roman emperors, to their lives. In, in Nero's case in particular, there was a mass purge after Nero was assassinated. Uh, people wanted to move beyond him, and they got rid of everything. And it was later his Roman historians documenting him who, who transcribed a lot of things or wrote a lot of things, uh, documented him, and there aren't a, there weren't... A ton of things about him. But with Jesus, most of the documentary instances showing that his existence was historic came from Roman historians closer in time to him. For example, one of them is um, from Tacitus, the Roman historian, who wrote about Nero. He wrote uh, about the reign of Tiberius. He was a Roman senator, very, very prominent, and he actually is where we know a lot of stuff about Nero from and Jesus at the same time. One of the things he writes uh, is that, let me read you, this is from the Annals regarding the Great Fire of Rome. Consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero had done this, uh, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. 
and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was made of all those who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Now, these Christians were considered to have hated mankind why? Well, they were considered to be atheists. That was the chief cause. That was why they were considered enemies of humanity, because all right-thinking people had to believe in a God. And they were considered atheists. Why were the Christians considered atheists? Because they believed their God was alive. No, I'm not making that up. That's actually why they were considered enemies of mankind to begin with. Other things came, but that was the original indictment against them, is that they were atheists, and no civilized people were atheists. But if they believed their God was alive, they had to be atheists because gods can't be alive. Now, there were other Roman historians as well who documented the existence of the Christians. Uh, there was Pliny the Younger, who actually was the Roman governor of Bithany, and there was Suetonius, the famous uh, historian. Uh, Pliny the Younger wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan in 112 AD asking how to deal with the Christians. They had grown uh, so much in that time. Uh, Bithany was the northern part of Turkey. And so he had to write to Trajan to figure out how to deal with them. Uh, Suetonius documented that Nero blamed the Christians for the fires in Rome and he, punishment was inflicted on the Christians. He wrote a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. That superstition um, that is, the superstition referred to excessive religious devotion. And what was that mischievousness? Well, it was the magical superstition that a god had risen from the dead, which they knew to be impossible, and yet they were growing in this superstition. Think about that. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope with no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed only Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here. His appearance was so badly marred he could not have been recognized. So disfigured, so beyond all human likeness that we hid our One of the 
things that well i just i've had to work around in the past is we've we've got to give you traffic on good friday because the roads are so packed people are going to church people are getting out of town for spring break um but i went in depth one time and then tossed a traffic to doug turnbull and when i came back i was in tears and had to recompose myself and it was very difficult so a lot of the the extended commentary i just have to save for the next hour when we have a longer clock so i can just push myself through um, without breaking down, I hope you will stick around as we go into deep dive. Uh, what do we know about this Jesus guy? Uh, who is he? Um, why do people say he's the risen Lord, uh, including his own brothers who really wanted nothing to do with him in life? That, I think, is one of the the, the big substantial arguments for the truth of, of who he is, not was, that he's still alive. And also the personal notes of why I feel compelled to do this. I want to explore all those things when we come back right now, though, to end this hour and start the next. We got to have Johnny Cash. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. When I hear the trumpet sound. I'm on a rise right out of the ground Ain't no grave can hold my body down Well, look way down the river And what do you think I see? I see a band of angels And they're coming after me Ain't no grave can hold my body down There ain't no grave can hold my body down Well, look down yonder, Gabriel Put your feet on the land and see But Gabriel, don't you blow your trumpet Till you hear from me There ain't no grave Can hold my body down Ain't no grave Can hold my body down Welcome, it's Eric Erickson. This is WSB and the Good Friday Show. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord I have played that song, Were You There?, and that version of it with Johnny Cash and the Carter Sisters every year that we've done this, since 2011 when I first started doing this. And to go a little deeper here before we get into the historic facts about Jesus and the evidence and and why it matters, um, just a a personal note. Um, I I said that I started this uh, almost as a tithe. I I have 52 weeks a year 
on the radio, and I, I just felt compelled that to take Good Friday, if they were going to make me work on Good Friday, I'd never actually worked uh, on a Good Friday before. I, I never had. And that if I was going to, then I wanted to spend time exploring what it actually meant, um, the history of it, because it is so monumental. And there is a, a personal story I have told several times on air, and it's been in as well uh, my book, Before You Wake, that really leads me to feeling compelled to do this. And I need to take you back to 2006. I had left my law practice in 2005 and worked for a year in Washington and then became the editor of Red State. And the week before Christmas, my partners at Red State told me cash had run out. I needed to go find a new job. And we had that conversation on the day my wife came home and informed me she had to go to the hospital. She had gone because some spots had been found in her lungs. Um, they didn't think anything of those spots, but they found a blood clot in her jugular vein. And nobody gets a blood clot in their jugular vein, but my wife had one. And obviously they were concerned. So she went into the hospital and her doctor started talking and there was a rare form of cancer that uh, eventually in its late stages can cause clots in your jugular vein and these little spots in your lungs. So they wanted to do a lung biopsy on her a week before Christmas. They did the lung biopsy. It was raining that day. A lot of these stories, people, it's sunshiny outside. no. It was a gloomy, rainy day, and they called me into a back room down a windowless corridor to a tiny room, and they put me in there. There was a phone, there was a Bible, there was a plastic plant, there was a doctor and my in-laws and a nurse, and the doctor told me my wife had six months to live, that she had a rare form of cancer, it had spread to her lungs, and there was no cure at this point. And because it had been raining, there was a terrible wreck and he had to excuse himself and go to the emergency room to assist in a terrible collision. And I was ultimately left there alone, not knowing what to do. And then realizing that I had to go get my child from daycare because they were about to close. It was almost six o'clock. It was dark, raining. And I got there and I got Evelyn and I got home and I didn't have any energy left. And I got her out of the car and knelt in the mud and started crying. And I'll never forget this little one-year-old patting me on the face as if everything was going to be okay. And I knew it wasn't. And got her inside, got her down for a nap, got myself cleaned up sat at my desk trying to compose an email to friends to tell them what was happening and just started praying and crying and praying and crying and praying and crying and waiting for someone to come relieve me of, of having to take care of this child. And I so I, I went back to the hospital 
after we had someone who could relieve me while Evelyn slept. And Christy didn't believe it at all. And here were these doctors, and they had looked at it, and pathology had looked at it, and they looked at it some more, and she had six months to live. And everyone left, and we sat in the hospital that night and had the conversation I hope none of you ever have to have about what life will look like when you're alone with a one-year-old and there's no one else in the house. And one of the things that she told me was that she had viewed my life by then with what I was doing at Red State and everything else, that that I was a catapult, that, that I catapulted ideas into the public arena for consideration and people, good candidates, that that, that was my job. And I kind of ran with it after that. Now, the doctors later realized they had misdiagnosed her. And we were very thankful for that. It was a, a very rare lung condition. And they had never seen it before. And it presents as if it is that cancer that they thought it was. The Mayo Clinic diagnosed her. But, you know, in 2016... Uh, literally as I was being pushed into a CT scanner to discover that I should be dying that day myself, uh, the Mayo Clinic called Christy and said she needed to come out for an exam that they were fairly sure that she had cancer then. They were seeing other people with that rare condition developing cancer. And sure enough, she has a a rare incurable form of lung cancer, genetic, Uh, nothing we can do about it. She takes a small pill that keeps in remission. That pill will eventually stop working. And we'll have to find another pill. As for me, I very nearly died. Um, I had dozens of blood clots in my lungs. They think it was actually several that broke apart uh, and filled up my lungs. Uh, My blood oxygen was below 90% by the time I went in. Um, But through all of these things, I've got to tell you, I have had a peace. And it it comes from faith and my time in seminary studying um, and just how I've seen God work in my life. You know, after this incident in 2006, Christy decided she wanted to stay home with the kids and and we couldn't afford for her to because I was on her insurance. It it would have been thousands of dollars a month for our insurance because my company was technically in Washington and they considered Georgia out of state or out of network. Everything in Georgia was out of network. Didn't know how we were going to make ends meet. And in 2009, she decided it was time for her to leave her job, and we didn't know what we were going to do. We prayed about it very hard, and literally within 48 hours, my boss called me and said uh, that they had realized I had never had a pay raise. We had sold Red State because, you know, we were out of a job. That happened as well. All this was going on in 2006, out of a job suddenly, but then a man calls and says he wanted to buy Red State. Within, I mean, a day or so, maybe it was the same day that, that I was told Christy had six months to live, that happened. And went to work for Eagle Publishing in D.C. But then they called and they said, you hadn't had a pay raise. The pay raise they gave me was literally, I'm not making this up, it was identical to what we were losing in Christie's income. Gross. My net equaled her gross income. The Lord works in mysterious ways. And 24 hours later, a lady called and said, you won't remember me, but in 2004... You had been put on MSNBC to cover the election as a conservative. Um, They had flown me up to New York back then to cover the Bush-Kerry election. She said she went on to work for Tim Russert. He had died. She now is at CNN. They were doing her new TV show, Did I Want a Job? Within 72 hours of my wife deciding she needed to leave her job and be home with the kids for her health, I had a pay raise equal to what she lost, and I got a job at CNN. And a year later, a local guy in Macon on the radio 
uh, got arrested in a crack house and they needed someone on the radio and they remembered I had been on before as a lawyer to talk about a case. So they called and asked if I could fill in the next day, which turned into a week, which turned into three months for no pay. I got paid, literally, I got paid in an Outback gift certificate that was expired. It wasn't a credit card one. It was it was one of the, the paper certificates, and it had expired. That's what they paid me. But while I was there, uh, Bob Neal, then the president of Cox Media Group, he was he was Red Red State, saw that I was on the radio, listened, liked what he heard, thought I actually had a radio job. And um, a guy, Greg, who, who works with Cox Media Group, reached out and asked if I wanted a weekend show, and I said, absolutely not. And... Next thing I know, they're asking if I'll fill in for Herman Cain. I did one night in October of 2010, and they come in the room after that's over, and they say, we don't really want you to, to have a weekend show here. We're wanting to know if you want to take Herman's spot. He's, he's running for president. And I was stunned. I was shocked. And I fell into radio. And none of these things I ever planned, and all of them I credit God and his plan for me, and I don't know what it is. Uh, but I've been tremendously blessed, and, and there are times of worry and times of doubt and times of dread and times of profound frustration. I get frustrated sometimes with my 5 to 7 o'clock and only having two hours instead of three, and I, I, I pray about it relentlessly, and nothing changes, and I figure, you know, I, I need to pray for contentment. This is where God wants me to be, and I, and I think sometimes this is why, so that I can share this story with you all and, and encourage you and let you know that we all have dark times in our life. I, I, I've been through them. We're going through some now in our life. But God has a plan for all of us. And that plan revolves around the guy who was tortured, beaten savagely, nailed to a cross, and then conquered death. And all you have to do is believe in him and you'll have eternal life. And that gives me great comfort knowing what my family faces and it can be scary sometimes but it gives us strength when we need it and I'm reminded of his blessings and feel compelled to share them with you because I hear from so many of you sometimes that you're going through these things Commercial breaks are for tears. I'm back. We're through the heavy stuff. It's Eric Erickson. This is the Good Friday Show.
Again, just to remind you guys, um, you can go to Apple Music, search for E.W. Erickson in their little social network, and you will find the Easter 2018 playlist of all the music I'm playing. Uh, I want to spend some time on the theology here briefly. Uh, And really, Easter begins in Genesis 15. Well, it begins in, in the garden. It begins with the fall the Proto-Evangelicum, where God tells Eve that she'll have a descendant who will crush the head of the serpent. Um, And he's referring to a singular male. I I think most scholars agree. There's some dispute on that, but most scholars believe it is referring to a singular male, and she clearly thinks it's Cain, doesn't work out so much, is not Abel, and so they think it's Seth. And then descendants later think it's it's Noah, whose name translated means really the Sabbath rest. And they, they thought it must have been him, but it wasn't. It was Jesus. Thousands of years later, it was Jesus. And in Genesis 15, God appears to Abram and makes his covenant with Abram. And, and God says to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And Abram brought God all these things, cut them in half, laid them each over against each other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, Abram drove them, drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there uh, for 400 years. And he makes his covenant with Abram. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. Now, that's significant because we know from the non-biblical archaeological evidence that at that time, where there really wasn't a written language, one of the ways that the the tribal leaders, the kings in the area, would enter into covenants with their servants and commit to great lavish wealth to the servants if the servants did certain things is they would make the servants cut animals in half. And they would walk between the pieces of those animals. The servants would. And it was a visible symbol that the king was going to bless richly the servant, but if the servant did not hold up his end of the deal, he was going to be killed. He was going to be like the animals. And so Abram does these things thinking he's going to walk between the parts and it was going to be a sign that, that the God of creation was going to bless him overwhelmingly with a covenant. And as if Abram kept his end of the deal, he would be rewarded. And if he wasn't, he died. And then what happened? God puts him to sleep and God walks between the parts of the animals. God, the second person in the Trinity, God walks through Abram would have recognized the, the, the smoking pot, the flames. He would have recognized that as God. And here's God telling Abram, Abram, if you don't keep your end of the deal, I'm going to die for you. You're not going to have to die if you fail. And of course, he and his descendants are going to fail. They're human and God demands perfection. And so God does. He always keeps his promises. And over time, he reveals further what this promise looks like that it will be an everlasting king on David's throne and that we will all know him and his law will be written in our hearts. And this is Jesus. He comes to the earth, God incarnate, fully man, tempted and tried, tortured and crucified, died, 
and resurrected from the grave. This is Jesus. This is God keeping his promise to Abram in Genesis 15 to Father Abraham made manifest on the cross. Who is he, though? What do we know about him historically? We'll discuss that when we come back. For a country Where I've never been before No sad goodbyes Will there be spoken for time won't matter anymore. Beulah land, I'm longing for you. And someday on the I'll stand where my It's Eric Erickson, and this is the Good Friday Show. Morning has broken like the first morning. Blackbird has spoken like the first bird. Praise for the singing. Praise for the morning, praise for them springing, fresh from the world. Sweet the rain's new fall, sunlit from heaven, like the first dew. Third day on their farewell tour now, no less. Uh, great, great group of guys. Uh, what do we know historically about Jesus? You know, th- there are historians out there who will tell you he didn't exist, but they are not in the mainstream, you should know. Uh, the overwhelming majority of scholars, atheists and believers, Muslim, Jews, they all accept that Jesus was real. They may not accept that he was the Son of God, but they accept he was a real person. Again, as, as I said at the beginning in the first hour of this program, that in a survey of his of a hundred historians, the, the most important events in human history, number one, uh, turned out to be the execution of this carpenter in the Roman province of Judea around 33 AD. And these were mostly people who didn't believe he was the son of God, but they recognized the consequence of it. You know, we accept that Socrates existed, even though he didn't write anything. Supposedly one of the wisest people ever, yet he didn't write anything. Now, a few people intend on believing Jesus is imaginary have decided that Socrates was too, but they're mostly weak-minded fools. I mean, most historians don't dispute that either one existed. And we know about Socrates because Plato, Xenophon, Aristophanes, they all wrote about Socrates. We know they existed. And though modern scholarship has spent a good bit of time trying to disprove biblical writings, if you start with the premise that they're frauds, guess what? You're probably going to conclude they're frauds. But we know that the early church and the people familiar with the the apostles, they accepted their writings as true. We know that Matthew is the gospel account of the apostle Matthew. We know that Mark's is the gospel account of Peter. 
We know that Luke was a doctor. He interviewed eyewitnesses. He investigated claims. One of the most curious things about Luke is in the very beginning, um, it's you can tell he's translating into Greek from someone telling him things in Aramaic or, or Hebrew. Um, the, the odds are he was actually interviewing Mary, and that's, that's how we know uh, those things at the beginning of Luke, the words spoken, because he interviewed these people and he translated it into Greek. And then there's John. I mean, John was Jesus's best friend. Three of the four of the Gospels were eyewitnesses. The fourth was based on interviews with eyewitnesses. And then you got separate books by Peter. You got John's other books. You've got James and Jude, who were eyewitnesses. And then you've got Paul. You don't even have to get to Paul, though. Um, But Paul was an eyewitness, too. We know a man named Irenaeus existed. Let's jump forward in time. Irenaeus was the bishop of Lyon. He was born in 130 AD in Turkey. He died in 202 AD in France. We've got his writings. We've got the writings of others documenting his existence. We know from Irenaeus he studied under a man named Polycarp. And we know Polycarp existed. Polycarp was burned at the stake. And according to to early Christian legend, the fire wouldn't catch his clothing. They had to stab him in the heart. Polycarp died a martyr. He was a very old man. They tried to get him to recant his faith. And he replied that Jesus had never recanted of him. So why would he recant of Jesus? And he was a great man in his community, but he was ordered to be killed because he was known Christian. And Polycarp, we know, also was friends with a man named Ignatius. Ignatius was born around 35 AD. He was martyred by being disemboweled and fed to wild beasts in the Colosseum in 107 AD in Rome. Ignatius and Polycarp both claimed they studied under a man named John. Irenaeus claims they studied under a man named John, and they all claim that this John was the Apostle John, and that he wrote the Gospel of John, that he wrote Revelation, that he wrote the three other books of the New Testament, and that John was Jesus's best friend. There are stories of John that exist outside the Bible from him as an old man. They're there. There was a man named Clement. We know he existed. We have his writings. Paul references Clement in Philippians 4.3. Yes, I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. Clement, through his writings and the writings of others, came into contact with Peter, Paul, and possibly John. Clement wasn't an eyewitness to Christ, we don't think, but he was an eyewitness to all of these guys. So there was a great con job going on with all these guys if Jesus wasn't real. Irenaeus claimed Polycarp and Ignatius studied under John. Polycarp Ignatius made the same claim saying John was an eyewitness to Christ and Jesus' best friend. Peter, John, Matthew, James, Jude, they all wrote books of the Bible claiming to be eyewitnesses. To say that Jesus didn't exist is to say we have to ignore the evidence of all of these people. We have to ignore their books in the Bible. But there's more to it than that either. According to Mark and Matthew, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mark 6 says, um, we're... The crowd said, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Now, some church traditions, including the Catholics, say they're referencing first cousins. Uh, They believe Mary was ever virgin and that Joseph had a family before Mary. Um, I'm perfectly willing to believe that James, Joseph, Jude, Simon, and the sisters were Mary and Joseph's children as well. They were younger than Jesus. James and Joseph keep the naming traditions of the time where the first son in a family was named after the grandfather and Joseph's father was named James and the second son, Joseph, is named after the father, Joseph. That keeps the tradition there. 
So we know there were brothers and sisters. We also know they didn't like Jesus. Mark 3 says that when, when Jesus' family heard what he was saying, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. They tried to stage an intervention. Mary was with them, by the way. Mary was with them. Mary, who had an angel appear to her and say, you're going to have the bear the Son of God. She's with the brothers. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And they did this. And then in John 2, we know Mary knows Jesus' special powers with the, the wedding in Cana. In John 7, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They're essentially saying, you know what? Get out of town. We don't want anything to do with you. You think you're so hot stuff. Go to Judah, go into Jerusalem. Tell them you're the son of God. Tell them before Abraham was, I am there and see what happens to you. No, he's going to get killed. His brothers know it. They're tired of him. They want nothing to do with him. And he does go to Jerusalem. And we know from the historic record, we know from the Romans, we know from Pliny, we know from Tacitus, we know from Suetonius, this guy Jesus was killed, crucified by a man named Pontius Pilate on his order. And we know from scripture that his brothers did not show up. They didn't show up. And so Jesus, according to John, Jesus on the cross saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home because his brothers were not there. And he died. And on the cross, Martin Luther says, the greatest sinner who ever lived was on the cross. God turned his back on him. The sky went dark. The universe could not behold all of that sin piled on top of him. And he died. And if that was the end of the story, we wouldn't be talking about it. It would not be monumental. Except something had to have happened. Because those brothers who wouldn't even show up at his execution, according to Acts one fourteen, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Those brothers who told him to get out of town, those brothers who wouldn't show up at his execution, they're part of the church. Something had to have happened. Something had to have happened. John becomes a pillar of the church, according to Paul, writing in Galatians. John seemed to be pillars along with James, or, or rather James seemed to be a pillar along with, with Peter and John. James, the brother of, of Jesus, seemed to be a pillar of the church. From Acts 15, we know that James stood up and defended the gospel. Paul says that Jesus appeared to 500 or more people. He, that he appeared to, to Jesus' brother James, he appeared to the apostles, he appeared to others, and at last he appeared to Paul. We know these things. They're written in Scripture. Jesus appeared to James, his brother, who had rejected him in life. And we know of James, Eusebius, the early church historian, records that the, the leaders in Jerusalem came to James and said, look, we know you didn't like your brother. We know you didn't think he was the son of God. You need to tell the people he's not because they're still try claiming that he's the risen Lord. And James tells them he was wrong. And James enraged them so much by doing that. The leaders in, in Jerusalem, they picked him up, they carried him up to the top of the wall of the temple, and they threw him off with him the whole time, according to the eyewitnesses, proclaiming Jesus was Yahweh. Not just anybody, Jesus was Yahweh, according to his own earthly brother. And the leaders threw him off to his death, and he was still alive when he hit the ground, so they stoned him to death. 
Jude, his other brother, penned a book of the Bible where he said, remember, Jesus is the Lord, Yahweh, and he led you out of Egypt. What a profound statement. Jesus' brother saying that my brother is Yahweh, and he led you out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. We'll hear that doxology here in a bit, a wonderful song I always play. These were his brothers who rejected him in life. Something had to have happened. Something had to have happened for James and Jude to become leaders in the church when they rejected him in life. Now, you can say, it's a great con. You, You can say that. There's nothing I can do to prove to you otherwise. But I got to tell you, I think history is on my side. So something profound happened because there were a lot of other people who claimed to be the Messiah and they were all killed too. Some of them came from better, wealthier families than Jesus. Jesus was just a carpenter's son. And yet he was the guy that people gravitated to. He was the guy with the message. And he was the guy that they all said that they were, they were willing to die for him. All his brothers were executed And all of the apostles except John were executed all for this lie. Would you die for a lie? Would you really die for a lie? Because these guys were. And I would submit to you, if they're willing to die for that lie, it's not a lie. It's real. He's the risen Lord. And if you put your faith in him, if you call him as your Lord and Savior, You will have eternal life with him. He is the fulfillment of that promise in the garden to Eve. He is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. He is the fulfillment of all the biblical promises. He is the risen Lord, your God. I see a shatter. You see. broken but you see beautiful and you're helping me to believe you're restoring me piece by piece there's nothing to do Folks, I wish you all a very happy Easter and a good Friday. I thank WSB and Cox Media Group for letting me do this. Thank you for listening. I leave you now with a doxology from this two-hour sermon. It is actually Jude's doxology set to music by a group called Ghost Ship.
remember Jesus brought you out of Egypt Remember He has sought you as His people Remember He has saved you from your sin brought you through the Red Sea. Remember mighty miracles that you have seen. Remember you were slaves and now are free. Remember that he is key to the only Come.